Hello, my name is Jill, and the Old Testament reading is found in Genesis 1.1. When God began to create the heavens and the earth, the word of the Lord. And the New Testament reading is found in Hebrews 1, 1 through 3a. In the past, God spoke through the prophets to our ancestors in many times and many ways. In these final days, though, he spoke to us through a son. God made his son the heir of everything and created the world through him. The Son is the light of God's glory and the imprint of God's being. He maintains everything with his powerful message. After he carried out the cleansing of people from their sins, he sat down at the right side of the highest majesty, the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Pam. If you're able, please stand for the gospel reading found in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Gospel of the Lord. Would you remain standing as we pray? We're starting a new series this morning called Who is God? And we're going to take the next six or seven weeks and look at the first person of the Trinity, God the Father, and then six or seven weeks after that we'll do Who is God? Jesus the Son. And then after that, who is God, the Holy Spirit? And so we're going to be in this series all the way to the end of May, and today we kick that off. So let's pray together as we start. Almighty God, we thank you for who you are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we ask even now, this morning, that you would open up our hearts and our minds as we come to you with our questions and maybe even our objections. Lord, we want to come to you with them. And so we're asking that you would speak. Come, Lord, through your word and speak. We pray these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. That is how the English writer Julian Barnes opened his 2008 memoir, Nothing to be Frightened of. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I think the phrase is an apt description of many in our culture and in our context today. If you were to say to somebody, what do you think? Do you believe in God? Are you, are you, oh, I'm not religious. Maybe I'm a little spiritual, but I don't really believe in God. But if you pressed him further, they might say something like, but I miss him. And the reason they might say that they miss him is because they might be moderately aware that God is how we have answered some of the big questions in life. And that even as we sit in a society that doesn't want to name or acknowledge or allow for a God relationship to us, we're still very aware that all of the things we like about our society, a sense of order and safety, a sense of justice, a sense of ordering the world, comes from a belief in God. But if we were to press even further, we would say that actually in Western civilizations, it's not just that we have come to depend on a God figure or a God story, but actually that there's influences of values and virtues that uniquely sprang up from this Jesus movement. 
Humility was not a virtue the Greeks would have praised, neither would the Romans. Uh, Praising yourself, exalting the strong, that would have been the way. And yet somehow there was this Jewish man who claimed to be a Messiah, who was crucified, died a slave's death, and his followers said, something happened on the third day that made us realize this was not just a man that we were dealing with. And ever since then, there has been this influence in Western societies in particular to say that we ought to pay attention to victims because one victim was vindicated 2,000 years ago. Secular historian Tom Holland says that we would not have the movements today from Me Too to Black Lives Matter if not for the triumph of one victim whose death was so shameful in the ancient world when it occurred that nobody would have spoken about it. It was impolite to bring up crucifixion over conversation with a friend. And yet, at the center of many, many towns all across Europe, on the top of buildings, in the middle of hospitals, adorning the doors of schools, all around the world, there is the symbol of Roman execution. The victim who was vindicated, has given us a value of dignity, justice, humility. And so even the most hardened skeptic might say something like Julian Barnes did, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I wish we had some way of appealing to something other than myself for my own opinions when I'm trying to shape society. Before we dive into the series over the next several weeks, I thought it would be good in week one to wrestle with a more uh, a prelude sort of question. Not who is God, but who needs God? Who needs God? Why even have this series? Why even talk about it? I mean, Glenn, it's clear we figured out that we don't need God. So isn't this just some sort of cute little kumbaya singing around a campfire by a dying breed of people known as Christians? I mean, who needs a God at all? Our age is, has been described as being Christ-haunted, an age that is cross-pressured, where believers are tempted to doubt and doubters are tempted to believe. And so wherever you find yourself this morning, watching online or in the room, maybe you're saying, I'm a believer, but I wrestle with doubt. Or you say, I'm a doubter, but I sometimes wonder if I'm wrong. My hope for you over the next few months as we go through this series is that you would re-examine this God question. And here's why I think it matters. The Scottish-American philosopher Alistair McIntyre said this about stories. He said, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of, of what story or stories do I find myself apart? In other words, we need to answer these questions of, of ethics and of identity and of morality. And we need to be able to say, what should I do and, and who should I be? But McIntyre says, you, you can't even answer that question until you recognize or ask the question of what story or stories am I a part of? If I am a character in a play, what is this play? Is it a tragedy? Is it a comedy? There are days it feels like both. And then McIntyre says, deprive children and all of us of stories and you leave them unscripted, anxious stutterers in their actions as in their words. What an apt description of our age. 
Our age has been called the age of anxiety. And I don't mean mental health stuff. I mean the deeper gnawing sense in our soul. The anxiety that says, I don't know. We thought it was liberating to say to a person, take the pen of your own story and write your script. We thought it was freeing to say to an individual, you can determine your own identity and value system. We thought it would be liberation. It turned out to be oppression. We thought it would be freedom. It turned out to be a prison. And so ours is an age of anxiety because we've lost a sense of a bigger story and we find ourselves adrift, wandering our way through life, unsure, should I date this person? Should I go here? Not because we don't know the details, but because we don't even know the bigger story in which these details would make sense. What kind of person should I be? What kind of life? Should I live? We are storytelling and story-formed creatures. If you think about the categories of things that exist in the world, you have a rock that exists but doesn't have life flowing through it. And then you have a tree which exists but has life flowing through it, but no consciousness. Then you have animals that exist, have life flowing through it, and a level of consciousness. And then you have human beings that exist, have life flowing through it, have consciousness, and then have consciousness about their consciousness. And so we tell stories. This is how it all began. Like Timon and Pumbaa sitting and saying, I think those are giant balls of gas in the sky. And Timon's saying, it's always gas with you, isn't it, Pumbaa? We are storytelling and story-formed creatures making meaning of the world. In one sense, you could say that there are big questions that require a big story. There are big questions that require a big story. And this is not an exhaustive list, but I want to just name some of these questions for you. Number one, what is the world? That's a question we've got to ask. Well, what is this? How do we end up on this blue planet? Every time we get another view from a telescope or a view from outer space, you're like, what is this cosmos that we are part of? Secondly, who are human beings? Does life begin in the womb? Does life end when they no longer have usefulness? How do we make sense of what human beings are? Are they computers that can be super sophisticated? Number three, why is there suffering and evil? It doesn't take long in this life before you realize, I don't like that. Why are there pandemics? Why are diseases indiscriminately attacking good people? Number four, how are we to relate to our neighbors? I know it's impolite to take something out of their yard, but why? If I can get away with it, if they didn't put a password on their Wi-Fi, is it really wrong if I use it? (laughs) That's a joke. (laughs) Number five, how are we to relate to nature? Exploit it, harness it, get everything you can out of it, and let future generations figure it out. What kind of society, number six, are we to build? It's a particularly important question when you think about the American story because the uniqueness of the American story is that you had a group of people from Europe finding a tremendous amount of geographical space with the ability to construct a society. But mistakes were made because it was a society that was good for some, but not all. And so... 
you have this unique opportunity to shape and build, but not the moral resources that answer the question adequately, but what kind of society should it be? A society only good for one ethnicity or one class? And how do we wrestle with that question? And then finally, what are we to hope for? This is another question. How do we move forward? What, what am I hoping? Is there any reason to wake up tomorrow? These questions and more come from a book called Seriously Dangerous Religion by Ian Proven, a professor at Regent College. And he goes on to explore how the Old Testament itself answers these questions. But to put it another way for us this morning, you could say this. Why do we need a God story? It's to make meaning of the world and of our lives. Why do I need a God story, Glenn? Can't I just write my own thing? Can't I just... We need a God story to make meaning of the world and of our lives. The French philosopher in the 18th century, Voltaire, said if God did not exist, it would be necessary to invent him. If God did not exist, it would be necessary to invent him. We need a God story to make meaning of the world and of our lives. And so we have... Until we decided we didn't need it anymore. (laughs) Something begins to shift. The ground begins to crack in Europe in the 1800s. As there's development of technology and advances in science and philosophy and thinking about politics and economics and theories begin to abound. People sort of started to say, you know what? We actually kind of have this figured out. We know how to organize society. We can figure out how to take care of production and the means of production. And we've got all these different theories about how to structure the world. And they they kind of said, well, let's just put God upstairs. And so what emerges is what is sometimes described as enlightenment or post-enlightenment rationalism. And this view that is sometimes described as deism, where God is up there. Do you believe in God? Sure. But it doesn't matter. Like he's the old guy upstairs, once in a while he gets cranky and yells. But other than that, we can do what we want in the house. Until along comes a German philosopher in the 19th century named Nietzsche, who dared European societies to go all the way with it already. Since you're living like you don't need God, just go all the way. And Nietzsche wrote a parable called the parable of the madman. And the scene is striking. He paints the picture this way. He says, the madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Whither is God? That's where is God in modern English. He cried, I will tell you, we have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers. But how did we do this? How could we possibly drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? Nietzsche understood the magnitude of this claim. What were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? Where is it moving now? Where are we moving? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually backwards, sideward, forward in all directions? Is there still any up or down? A question that we sometimes feel on a Monday morning. Is there any up or down? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder Is not night continually closing in on us? Do we not need to light lanterns in the morning? That's how dark the world would be. Do we hear nothing as yet of the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? Do we smell nothing as yet of the divine decomposition for God's to decompose? 
What Nietzsche is saying is, it might take some time for the implications of our life actions to really come home, but it's happening. We've already begun to relegate God to certain quarters, but it's tantamount to unchaining the earth from the sun. And then he says the famous line, God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. Sometimes this passage gets given a bad rap like Nietzsche was arguing that God should be dead. But what he was saying is, you're a society that is religious in name only. You're a society that claims the use of the name of God, but in effect you're using the name of God in vain. (laughs) Because your life has nothing to do with God. So kill him already. And then in haunting words, Nietzsche goes on to say, must we ourselves not act like gods to become worthy of the act of killing God? He starts to say that in the vacuum created by erasing the God figure, that we'll have to rise up on our own. And it was a hundred years or so after Nietzsche that Hitler took this warning and made it his own calling and said, I will be the overman. I will be the, I will have the will to power and we will take over. And we look at the horrors of the Holocaust in the 1940s and we think, oh, this is awful. But what's happened in our world in 2020, in the 2020s is that it's not a nation state that has taken the place of God, but the autonomous individual. And so now it's not the Nazi regime that has taken the place of the power of the world. It's you. It's me. We've kind of said, I don't really want a God figure bossing me around. So I'll take that role. I'll be the author of my own life. And so for many of us today, what we live like is what could be described as a functional atheism. A functional atheism. You might give God lip service. Yeah, I believe in God. Sure, sure. God God and country, brother. You don't even know what that means. Except that it's a nice slogan. It seems to generically capture your values, but it's a mix of nostalgia and patriotism and something else from a 1950s TV show. Because what you really live like is as if there is no God. I can decide my own core, my identity, my sexuality, my morality. My, I'll make my own decisions. Thank you very much. And if that's not us, if we're not functional atheists, the second would be an indifferent agnosticism. And this is the kind of thing that says, look, man, I'm not smart enough to know if there's a God or not, and I certainly don't know which God it is, Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim, whatever, man. Let's just say that it doesn't matter. An indifferent agnosticism sounds gentler, but it is every bit as devastating. Because it has come to the conclusion that the God question is irrelevant. It's just absolutely irrelevant. And the best metaphor I've heard of this is of living in a, a, a sports arena where the dome is closed on the roof. If you go to a stadium that has a retractable roof, let's say you go down to Arizona Sun Devil Stadium or you go to Cowboy Stadium. If you're a Cowboy fan, they play uh, later today. You, you, might, you might think, oh, this is great. But nobody goes to Cowboy Stadium and says, I hear the view of the stars is really great. You don't go to Cowboy Stadium to do some stargazing. Number one, the lights are too bright. And since the lights are so bright, they're like, let's just close the roof anyway. 
That's a metaphor for our age, isn't it? We've turned the lights up of our career and our materialism and consumerism and hedonism and all of our pleasures and pursuits. We've turned the lights up so bright that someone says, do you believe in God? And you're like, God, why does that even matter again? I'm just having a good time, man. And so in effect, the heavens are closed because we're sort of saying, why does it matter? Now, I know this might be a way to encourage some finger-wagging in your heart and say, oh, yeah, the world is so evil. But that's not my hope. My hope is that you would actually take inventory of the subtle ways that this way of thinking actually creeps into our own hearts. What if God is relegated just for Sundays? That's a kind of functional atheism or indifferent agnosticism, isn't it? What if Jesus was just the Lord of your spiritual life, but your financial decisions, your sexual decisions, your relationship decisions, you're like, no, no, I mean, I'll take care of that. But, but Jesus, I like Jesus, cool. He'll forgive my sins and guarantee that I don't go to that hot place after I die. <laughs> we live like this. My hope for us in this series is not that we would become generic theists, people who believe in God. I really am not interested in you believing in God. I'm interested in you believing in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what I want for you. Our goal as we come to church is not to just sort of keep a tradition alive and do what good citizens have always done. My goal for you is to say, hang on a minute. The Christian story of God is so different than just a general view of some dude in the sky who's got the controls of the universe at his hands. The Christian vision of God is more beautiful than that. It's more dangerous than that. It is more mysterious than that. And it is more compelling than that. And so very briefly this morning, I want us to look at three things the Christian story of God shows The Christian story of God shows us three things about this God. Of course, we're going to spend the whole series unpacking what the Christian story of God shows. But I want to just tease out a few big ones today. Genesis 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless and void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. And then God said, let there be lights. And there was light. Think for a minute that the very first time we hear God speak, it is to help us see. It's to turn the lights on. I don't know if your parents in the room, if your kid has ever had a nightmare or a bad dream, the first thing you do is let there be light. You come in the room and you're not like, it's me, it's me, because at that point you're still a shadowy, large, scary figure. (laughs) The first thing you do is you say, whoa, it's me, you're okay. And I love that the story of creation is a story that opens with God saying there was chaos, it's formless, it's void, it's darkness. And the first thing the loving God does is to say, boom, lights. Hey, look, look. God is a self-revealing God. And as the next few weeks go on, we're going to talk about how the story of creation in Genesis is so different than some of the the ancient pagan myths of creation from the Akkadians and the Mesopotamians and all of their stories of the gods at war with one another and out came the moon and the sun and the planets. Or 
the stories of those gods creating human beings to be their servants, to do whatever they wanted. We'll talk about all the ways that those stories are different from the Genesis story. But for this morning, I want you to see that it reveals a God who creates all things and who reveals himself to us. A God who, number one, creates all things and reveals himself to us. The self-revealing God. The Jewish theologian and philosopher Abraham Heschel decades ago said that the Jewish story and indeed the Christian story is fundamentally about God's search for humanity, not humanity's search for God. So many of the world religions are like, well, a wise man went away up to a mountaintop or a philosopher locked himself in his study and read many books. But the Jewish and Christian story says, when the world was dark, God said, let there be lights. The Christian story, the the Bible begins with a self-revealing God, a self-disclosing God. It's even when, when Adam sins, Adam doesn't say, oh, I've messed up. I got to go find God. I mean, that's usually not our instinct when we mess up, is it? The first thing we do when we screw up is, uh uh-oh, I'm going to cover that up. God is the one who's calling out for Adam. Adam, where are you? What's going on? Hey! Some years ago when our son was about six and a half, we were on a family trip to Mount Rushmore, and we just walked in the entrance and we were walking forward, and all of a sudden, Holly and I stopped, and we're like, we've lost our boy. We can't find him. And we panicked. You know that moment, if this ever happens to you as a parent, you just, your heart is in your stomach, and you're just like, oh, my goodness, where is he? And he had started to look for us, but he went backwards toward the parking lot, and fortunately, a dad and, a, and, a, and, a, and his son saw Jonas and said, hey, are, are you lost? And he's like, yes. And he walked him back into the park connecting him with a park ranger, and we were looking, 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 and then we saw the park ranger, we saw Jonas, and we found him. But he wasn't going to get anywhere by his search for us. And sometimes I think that's like us. You, we feel the wandering, the, I don't know, man, I don't know how to make meaning. My life is so confusing, and there's pain, and there's suffering. And so we think the answer is, I'm going to figure this out. When maybe the best thing to do, as they tell you when you're lost, is just stay right there. I'll find you. Just stay right there. Some of you this morning, that's the word of the Lord to you, just to say, I don't know. God, help me. And the God who called out to Adam in hiding, the God who called out to Abraham, the God who called light out of darkness will call your name. He's the God who searches for you. And then in John 1, I want to read you three passages that the early followers of Jesus wrote. This is within a generation of the life of Christ, the time of Christ. Within a generation of his life on earth, his followers began to say, we've we got to write some stuff down. We're trying to make sense of this. He, he, he was a teacher who did miracles. He was crucified, and then God raised him from the dead. What's going on? And as they began to pray and think through this, they developed an understanding of Jesus. In John 1, John writes this. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. And all things came into being through Him, and without Him, not one thing came into being. John's got Genesis on his mind. And he's trying to say, this Jesus? Yeah, the story didn't begin in a manger. He was like before creation. 
What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. John's gospel doesn't have a nativity story. John's gospel has a creation story. He says, if I'm going to tell the story of Jesus, I'm not going to tell a story about a birth and conception. I'm going to tell a story of how he was there at the beginning of the world. The light does not overcome the darkness. And then Paul, Paul who had lived against Jesus, you remember this, persecuted people who followed Jesus. Paul one day himself saw the lights. And then Paul wrote from prison to a church in Colossae. Colossians 1, he's talking about Jesus. He says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible. Paul's, the theology is developing now for these early Christians. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been, crea- have been created through him and for him. He's not just the agent of creation. He's the sovereign of creation. Paul starts to really get on a roll here. And I imagine Paul's writing a song here. I love theologians who write songs. Hmm. He himself is before all things and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So that he might come to have first place in everything. Paul, who's first? Jesus. Paul, on my search for God, where do I start? Jesus. He is the head of the body of the church. Uh, First place in everything, verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. What a verse. What a verse. Not only is Jesus the agent of creation and the sovereign of creation, Jesus is the one who brings redemption and rescue. He's the one. Whoever wrote the letter to the Hebrews said something similar. Hebrews 1, long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, God has always been a self-revealing, self-disclosing God. This is not a God who wants you to find him. This is a God who wants you to see him. And then he says, but in these last days he has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. And he sustains all things by his powerful word. Think of that phrase, the exact imprint. That's a dramatic statement. That means if you're saying, well, well Glenn, I mean, I mean how, what, what does God actually think about this and this and this? And what is God actually like? The answer is, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. And so the second thing that the Christian story of God reveals is that the Christian story of God shows a God who is revealed in Jesus. A God who is revealed in Jesus. For some of you, the idea of a God figure has been damaged in your minds because Maybe you had an abusive parent that used God's name to beat you. Maybe you had experiences of trauma that were done in God's name. Maybe you've heard preachers use God's name to justify violence. And I'm here to say this morning, I'm so sorry that that happened. But the only person who shows us what God is like fully and perfectly is not a mother or a father or a teacher or or a boss or a preacher. 
It's Jesus Christ alone. Jesus alone. And the question for us is not, do you believe in God? The question is, what would you do with Jesus? What would you do with a God who looks like Jesus? My friend, Pastor Brian Zahn says, yeah, Voltaire said, if God didn't exist, we would have had to invent him. But I say, if Jesus Christ didn't exist, we would have never imagined him. If Jesus Christ didn't exist, we would have ne- who would have written up a story like that? Not even the people of God, the children of Israel, would have imagined that God looks like a person who hangs out with lepers and heals them. A person who elevates women and says, your sins are forgiven. A person who can look the one who denied him in the eye and say, Peter, do you love me? The one who went to the cross and suffered and died and looked out at the oppressive regime of the empire and said, Father, forgive them. Who would have imagined that? Nobody. If Jesus didn't exist, we would never have imagined him. And then the third and final thing this morning. At the end of Matthew's gospel, one of the accounts of Jesus, the followers of Jesus decide that they need to turn their stories into script. That script becomes scripture. And you see the formulations beginning to develop. Matthew 28, verse 19, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. This formulation that Jesus says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We hear this now and we're like, blah, 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 you know, wah, wah, wah. It's like Christian wrote you know how radical that was in the first century for Jewish followers who grew up their whole lives saying, behold, the Lord, the Lord is one, to say he's still one, but something else is going on. He's still one, but there's a father, there's a son, and the Holy Spirit. Ah! And it would take him some time to figure out how to say it. The father's not the son, the son is not the father, the father's not the spirit, the spirit. We can't partial up the actions of the Trinity. We can't divide it up and say, well, the Son was doing that, but the Father was doing that. No, they're one, but they're three. The Christian story of God shows a God who is three in one. And that's why for this whole series, all the way to the end of May, we're we're going to look at the revelation of each of these three persons of the Trinity. And the creed, the Christian confession, gives us language for what to say about the Father and what to say about the Son and what to say about the Spirit. But for this morning, you know, here's what we need to know. You're like, I don't know, how do I make... Listen, here's what you need to know for this morning. The three-in-oneness of God means that God in his very essence is love. Is love. That love is not a feeling for God. Love is not an emotion that shows up one day and disappears the next Love is not something that you're like, I don't know, is God in a loving mood today? Love is what God is in his essence because in his being, he is three and one. And in the Christian faith, there are mysteries. But mysteries doesn't mean we stay far away. Mysteries mean we draw near with worship. Mysteries mean we come close with adoration. Daryl Johnson, theologian at Regent College, wrote a thin little book called Experiencing the Trinity. I read it last year and absolutely loved it. And he says this line, he says, at the center of the universe is a relationship. Isn't that beautiful? 
At the center of the universe is a relationship. This is the most fundamental truth I know. At the center of the universe is a community. And it is out of that relationship that you and I were created and redeemed. Out of that relationship we were created and redeemed. And it is for that relationship that you and I were created and redeemed. Would you stand with me this morning? At the center of the universe is a relationship. And it is the most fundamental truth I know. Everything changes about your life when you recognize that God looks like Jesus. Everything changes about your life when you recognize that at the center of the universe is a relationship. And this three-in-one God created you out of that relationship. And saved you out of that relationship. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All of them involved. And that he saved you for that relationship. 